Big shout out to Century.io and to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode of Does Not Compute. Guys, your code's broken. It's okay, you can admit it. Century.io fully accepts this fact, and they just want to help you fix it. You can catch errors in your code by having a test suite, but you know you're going to miss edge cases, a user's going to do something stupid, and it's going to fall through the cracks, and you're going to get a crash. Then you're going to get an error report from the user, and it's going to be incomplete, you're not going to have all the details, you're not going to know the context of the error, and the user's going to have a bad experience. Or you could add Sentry to your app. You'll get a detailed contextual information for every single crash. You get a stack trace, you get the git commit where that error occurred, and even the developer who checked it in so you can point the finger. You can even hook it up with your individual releases of your application. You can tell which user caused the error, and you can do a custom breadcrumb trail which tells everything that the user did leading up to the error. Sentry even integrates with the deployment pipeline, so some errors won't even make it to production. They have great library support for many client and server platforms, like a couple of DNC favorites, Vue.js, Rails, and Elixir. So head on over to Sentry.io and give it a try. There's a free developer account, which is perfect for personal projects and early stage applications. Sentry.io, your code is broken. Let's fix it together. Ah, oh, man, things, uh, things have been turned on their heads over here at Shrockwell Laboratories. Incorporated, Inc. L- it's an LLC. LLC. Hmm. For tax reasons. For tax reasons. They've been turned on their head. You sent me a message uh, a couple of days ago with a thought-provoking question. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, let me see if I can find it. Oh, my God. Cat of the show, Bucky. Basically, you asked me, if I could design an application from scratch today, Greenfield, no assumptions about the technology, mm-hmm. what stack would I choose? And what was uh, what was your answer? What'd you come up with? Well, <laughs> why are you asking me? So, the, I mean, there's a couple problems with that question, right? Obviously, you didn't. There's no. You can only make the decision based off of the specifications of the application you're actually designing. Mm-hmm. The requirements, really, is what it comes down to, right? You're given requirements. Uh, what stack do you pick? Mm-hmm. And uh, you and I have a somewhat limited selection of stacks in terms of technologies, right? We do a lot of the same stuff. There's not. There's. It's almost all overlap, right? Right. For example, we're not. I'm not going to say like let's use ASP.NET MVC or let's use Laravel or <laughs> let's use Django, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be Rails or Phoenix, and it's going to be. Do I do a full front end thing? Do I do uh, a plain web thing? Do I do some kind of mix? Uh, and then basically, you know, a database, right? <laughs> like right. That's, yeah. That's kind of what it comes down to. And maybe you can nitpick about like what CSS framework you use. Obviously, you can decide what front end framework, JavaScript monstrosity framework you want to use. Anyway, uh, where it came down was like, I really kind of wanted to think about what made me the most happy <laughs> like what here we go no it's 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 not that feelings driven development fdd i just coined that term <laughs> you heard it here first people if you're i mean you you were asking in the context of like a side project like you're doing something for fun uh yeah right? yeah i think so and so it's a, it's not really like a business decision right because <laughs> then it comes down to like what's the cheapest to develop what's the cheapest to host what's right mm-hmm. uh what's gonna get us to market fastest and uh to move fast and break things right right 
I'm really skirting around around the question here, but where where did we end up? I don't even actually remember. I think I ended up on just like just just doing a just doing a Phoenix app, right? Yeah, well, I mean, so one of the things we talked about was uh because a part of that too I mentioned how um I think the big thing was that I wanted to kind of scaffold a project that I could use as a boilerplate for other projects. So I was basically, when I asked that question, I was basically frustrated because I didn't want to keep rewriting things like authentication and authorization and things like that. Things that are almost the same across most projects. I just got, I was, I was annoyed because I started another quick side thing and I was annoyed at having to do that again. And uh, yeah, so I mentioned, well, I asked that question to you and then I mentioned I was thinking about making sort of like a Phoenix boilerplate that I could just fork every time I want to make a new thing that kind of stands up an MVP pretty quickly. Right. And I think this is this is an awesome idea. I mean, Rails has the concept of uh, templates, I think, or they have they have a system in place for doing this. You can also like roll your own generators and stuff too. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is not a new concept, but like I haven't really seen anyone do it for Phoenix yet. And I think it's, you know, you can make it as simple as complex as you want. My idea was <laughs> to just uh, like make a, make a full plugin based template generator mm-hmm. system. Like you, you give a command line arguments like, like view CLI does, right. Where you kind of give it some options and it builds an app based off of what you want. And uh, right. I thought about doing that, but they're like, no, like that's not, that's not what you want. You just want something that you can fork deploy and like, get the get on the ground and and just get moving with like yeah and and like because of because of your projects are basically saas applications right there's a there's a lot of common boilerplate there right user signups mm-hmm. uh maybe linking to billing you know if you want to add that option uh authentication authorization uh helpful gems css libraries right yeah i think so i think i was kind of jealous too because i was looking around at different frameworks and and whatnot. And I was looking at Laravel and I've always thought that Laravel had a lot of neat tools for it. So for example, I'm looking at their homepage right now and and they have this project called Horizon, which is uh, akin to Active Admin, I think was one of them for Rails. I think there's one for uh, Phoenix as well under the same name, Active Admin. Um, But basically it's just a bolt-on admin panel that kind of introspects your stuff and then gives you uh, CRUD actions that that could look kind of nice uh, and are set up in a decent way. Um, They have, uh, what's Horizon? Oh, sorry. Horizon is an admin for Redis, similar to Sidekick, I guess. Nova is the administration similar to Active Admin, et cetera. Then there's like, Echo, which seems to be event broadcasting and WebSockets and stuff. But now that there's more, there's they have something uh, cashier. Yeah, so it's it's like you you install this cashier add-on, and then suddenly you have Stripe subscriptions that are that's plugged in, and they have anyway. So they just have a bunch of different stuff. So for example, if you're building a SaaS, they have this thing called Spark, which it costs money, but it stands you up with a UI that is bootstrap, localization, per seat pricing, a UI to control all that stuff, Stripe's baked into it. It has authentication, subscriptions, teams, invoicing, uh, impersonation, two-factor auth. It has like all this stuff just out of the box. You you pay a hundred bucks for it and then you have a SaaS and then you basically just build the the stuff that you actually are interested in building, like the stuff that's specific to your app. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I guess part of what motivated my jealousy and frustration or what motivated my frustration there was <laughs> jealousy for things that other frameworks have. Yeah, I don't know a lot about Laravel uh, or PHP or anything. I, I really don't either. I have a few friends, shout out to the friend of show, Kevin. He's a Laravel guy. And uh, so it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's like grass is greener. I mean, obviously I know that say if you were to stand up a, an app with something like Laravel Spark that I just mentioned that has all this stuff, it's kind of like the whole, I, I, I hate to pick on device, but everyone I knew you were going to say the device yeah. situation. <laughs> the device situation where it gets you to 90%, but the but getting to 100% for your situation is really difficult. Device is just the, uh, I don't want to say scapegoat. It's like the, uh, it's it's not a uh, cause of the problem. It's a it's like a symptom uh-huh. Uh-huh. of, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of illustrates it. But yeah, nothing inherently wrong with device. Yeah. So I mean, I did look around a little bit. There, it's like brand new. I I think I read about this maybe yesterday. Something called Elixir Boilerplate, and so it it sets you up with Phoenix, Ecto. Um, it's funny it lists XUnit, but of course it would come with XUnit, Credo. Mixed format, of course, it comes with mixed format. Uh, distillery set up with doc, Docker, Get Text, Dialyzer, um, some basic auth. So it's kind of it's like getting more towards that direction, you know. And error reporting with Sentry, of course. Shout out to Sentry, we love Sentry around here. But yeah, what was I getting at? I was, I think I was getting at like I just my my motivations for asking you that were just out of frustration, I suppose. But I guess that kicked off a whole. Uh, Turn a whole uh, turn of events for you, did it? Well, just getting back to your original point, like nothing kills your productivity more than having a cool idea and getting excited and and planning it out, and then oh, I have to make a user model. Mm-hmm. Like it's the worst. <laughs> I totally, I totally get that. You just want to, you know, just get that MVP and just kind of see it and play with it and and see if it even makes sense or if it goes anywhere. And right, anything to reduce that friction is definitely warranted and i'm curious to see uh what you come up with it could be something that could be useful for other people too right i mean it's just a it's just a git repo anyone can you as long as you keep it up to date with the latest you know dependencies and stuff like anyone can can fork that yeah so that's that's one of the concerns is obviously if i have to make security updates then i've already forked the repository i guess i could just pull them in that way but then you have to mer- I, I suppose managing a, a merge conflict is maybe the worst case scenario there, which really in in hindsight, it's like not too bad. In reality, it's not too bad to, to deal with that. But I don't know. I could just wait a little while because friend of the show, Nick, uh, is working on uh, a version of this, which funny because at the same time I was messaging you, I mentioned the idea to him and he sent me a screenshot of he was actually writing basically the same thing, uh, an Elixir Phoenix kind of boilerplate. And he was modifying the built-in Phoenix uh, generators, I think. You can kind of override them to generate whatever you want in, in that case. Uh, so that would get you a little bit farther if you if you wanted to control how those things are generated in a style and the things that are included. For example, if I wanted to make an absence generator, it, would, it wouldn't be that, it wouldn't seemingly be that difficult, but I could just do the, the old developer thing and just wait for someone else to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Personally, I would like throw everything you could possibly think you could want and then just it's way easier just to remove things right right? yeah yeah that's true that's true that's not that's not a bad idea but um yeah i the the friction is is what you're mentioning here is what i've been really feeling the friction is a big one and a little bit of design collective too i mean there there have been certain things where uh for example 
we stopped using a lot of the AWS package stuff because there was a new major version out and we just weren't able to upgrade it. And so um, I just started making plain old uh, requests via AC Poison to it. Same with Stripe because the Stripe Stripe package at the time was like one X and it was getting completely rewritten. And I didn't have time to wait for them to rewrite a package. So I just started writing. Basically, I just made my own API clients, like really simple API clients inside of Design Collective. Which, you know, thinking back, like, yeah, it would be nice to have a more um, mature ecosystem there. And I, I don't want to say, like, that's putting me off Elixir because I still love Elixir. I love the language a lot. But it does kind of make me a little jealous when I look over at Laravel and there's, like, all this stuff where I look over at, obviously, you know, Ruby and Rails have been around forever. Uh, and there are a lot of things that you could just use there. But I think really the most important thing, like you said, was this was all in the context of a side project. And in the side project, the most important thing is to remove friction because if you're programming all day long at a day job, the last thing you want to do is is sweat the small details on a side project unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit with Bthink as well. Like you wanted to just kind of use that as your playground for experimenting with new technologies, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in like thinking about live view and uh, you know some other stuff you mentioned there. You thought about doing it as Nux for a while. I forget what kind of what it is right now. It's API client, um, just Phoenix and Nuxt. Okay, yeah. So uh, stuff like that, I can I totally get behind that. Sometimes I feel like I don't have the energy to work on those fun side projects like I used to. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, anything to motivate that is, is good. I mean, I've, I'm still trying to get uh motivated to get the next version of my iOS app out there, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. It's just kind of been sitting there. So, so where did this, I don't think we ever uh, got to where, where'd you, where you ended up, I guess, after this discussion, because you said it had made you think a little bit, right? Yeah. And it, it became relevant actually a few days later uh, when I had a discussion uh, with with Lee, who is my partner in RHR, but is also uh, I work for him at his at Glance. Mm -hmm. So in case that was confu confusing at all, and uh, with Glance I'm working on this DevOps stuff, and uh, a couple oh, I don't even remember. Uh, it's it's been a couple months now because it's kind of been on and off there and. I wrote a uh, Phoenix application called the Depot, where uh, kind of like a like a train depot or whatever, where uh, we can kind of use it as a central point for basically orchestrating all of the uh, auto scaling and provisioning boxes and you know setting them up and tearing them down because there's a lot of extra logic that's required there, and I didn't want to use like serverless AWS Lambda functions like tied together. I didn't want to use uh, you know that the, the built-in tools weren't flexible enough to integrate with the way we wanted to do, uh, and we just wanted to add a lot of extra functionality. And the easiest way to do that is just to write code, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, and a web app that you host is the easiest way to run code anywhere. So, wrote this little Phoenix app. Uh, I used, as you mentioned, the EX AWS gem, or excuse me, wow, <laughs> <laughs> the EX AWS. Uh, library yeah. in phoenix for for talking aws and it was fine it had uh, most i won't say all but it had most of the functions i needed but it had enough escape hatches that i could wire up uh the things that i wanted to do that weren't implemented directly and then it just kind of sat there and it kind of chugged away in staging and it's fine so i had a discussion with lee this week we sat down and we we're like okay 
uh, I asked him, like, you, you had some hangups about Phoenix. Like, you're kind of hesitant because we haven't even, like, proposed this as a project to, like, the company. You know what I mean? We're just kind of working on it. Uh, skunk works or whatever. Sure. And he's like, you know, Phoenix is going to be a hard sell, right? It, it, it's, uh, no one else here knows what it is. Like, you have to justify it. Right. And of course, us as independent developers, we never have to worry about that. I mean, you did a little bit, but like, obviously that paid off. Right. Right. It was really, really hard to justify writing this application in a language and a framework that could potentially would be potentially very difficult to support and maintain an update in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. I actually learned this this term from Chris McCord uh, when I was talking with him one time. He called it the bus factor, which is uh, like the number of people that would have to get hit by a bus in order for that like knowledge to go away. <laughs> okay. So so uh I got to share an Uber with him one time uh, at Elixir Conf, which was totally happenstance and random and awesome. And uh he had sp- was up all night the previous night talking with Jose and all these other guys about all the ideas for Phoenix and Elixir and stuff. And he's like he started like brain dumping all his thoughts to me. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I just increased the bus factor by one. So this is on you now. I'm like, oh Jesus. I yeah. The bus factor. Right, like, like if I develop a Phoenix app, the bus factor is very, very, very small. There's not a huge team of people who can look at it, understand it, develop for it, improve it, maintain it. Fine, and like you have to keep that in mind. You're developing for some other entity, for you know, mm-hmm. for a larger, for something other than yourself. So that was that was a big factor. I also note that the AWS gem, and by gem I mean gem this time, is a officially supported library by Amazon. Like it's a real honest to God gem that is a first class citizen in their, in their, you know, ecosystem. And it is awesome. It implements everything. It's consistent. The API is great. You can do everything resource-based so you can like talk to things as if they're objects and it just kind of transparently calls out to the API. Right. Okay. Or you can do it like functional based. Like you can actually just do the API calls directly. Right. So yeah. Like depending on yeah. whatever methodology you want to do. Much like the Stripe gem, right? Um, I'm not sure actually. I'm pretty sure the Stripe gem is like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So in some case the resources a uh, resource way is just more convenient. But sure. Sometimes you need that kind of control to do the function. So that was also just a big, big factor because like we do lots of AWS stuff. The the stuff's hosted on AWS. The box itself is going to be hosted on AWS. And uh, yeah, we just needed that control. So that was obviously a big factor. I guess I didn't really clarify this, but we were discussing Rails versus Phoenix for this application, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is the pro Rails argument. AWS gem, bus factor. Obviously the ecosystem around deploying Rails applications is uh, much more developed. Uh, I used Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk and had a load balanced auto-scaling cluster of rails servers backed by uh amazon rds postgres instance in like a couple of clicks like i followed a tutorial and uploaded the source and it was like running that's pretty awesome you can't <laughs> do that with phoenix <laughs> well you can do it with gig Elixir, but but like that's uh this is so much more right sure and then the final nail in the coffin was at least as like at the end of the day if you told me that phoenix was miles ahead if phoenix was the future if it was you know orders of magnitude better than rails for this particular application then i would say no question just do it in phoenix mm-hmm. and i'm like i can't 
I can't say that in good conscience. Like that's that's not true. It's just not true. This is a very simple application, uh, with all those other factors taken into account. Uh, there's no big win here for using Phoenix. So he's like, okay, that's that's it then. We're, we're gonna we got to do Rails, and uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was that, and that was like, it was a really interesting conversation because when I was talking with you a few days prior. We're like, oh yeah, this is fun. Let's do this thing. We'll do it Phoenix, and that's that's cool. We'll do whatever, right? Like, but given the context of a much larger organization, you know, when the rubber meets the road, sometimes you just gotta just gotta get stuff done with the tools that are established. Right. So, does that organization uh, glance? Do they already have? Uh, are they already using Ruby in production? I don't believe so. They they actually have a smattering of technologies. Um, okay. They do have some. Python, they have some um like lots of C and C plus uh, plus. and then their newer stuff is actually in Node. Okay. So they've kind of evolved, you know, with whatever technology is hot for their particular thing. But the, but those individual servers are I don't want to say microservice, but like each server is a different technology. Like they have a bunch of different server types. Right. That they that they manage and uh each one is is totally different. So um, no, they don't have any Ruby or Rails stuff, but again, like this is a, it's, it's, it's easy enough for someone to, you know, those resources are out there for someone to figure it out. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Cause it, when, when you say this to me, it makes, it makes complete sense. Right. I don't find myself thinking like, Oh, uh, cop out. I don't find myself thinking that at all because those are things that I've struggled with and I have the benefit of working with Elixir every single day. So for example, uh, more recently, going out to say look for an application performance monitoring tool, right? Um, I ended up with Scout, but I tried three of them, and and none of the three support everything they do for say Ruby. So, uh, for example, when the last time I had to set up an APM for Ruby, you plugged it in and you had all this information, and it was awesome. With with Elixir, you plug it in and you have a decent amount of information, but it's not nearly as much information, not nearly as many features as you would have with say Ruby. Uh, And there are a few reasons, you know, obviously number one, Elixir is newer than Ruby is. Number two, I would say that they probably have far more customers for the Ruby side, uh, which, you know, would make sense because Elixir is newer, but also they probably are off like newer to offering Elixir services. Right. Uh, So, and again, I I say like, I I love Elixir and I, I don't think I, I'm not regretting my decision to use Elixir for, for my day job, but it's a different situation like exactly like you said, like you're contracting for this company and and at some point this will be handed over for other people to use. And so you have to think about uh that, right, at that point. How is easy how easy is it going to be for them to to kind of inherit and support and learn and find resources for? And that's a pretty big decision. I think that's probably the right decision, especially when thinking about you're a contractor and they're hiring you to to make that decision essentially for them. Yeah. And you made a good point that no, they don't have any existing sort of knowledge in this space, but I wouldn't be able to be hired to write anything in those other technologies. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to, sure. the amount of time it would take me to learn Django. And uh, I mean, they're not even using Django. They're just using Python, but like, you know what I mean? Like just, just to say I use Python to and write a Django application, like the overhead for that would just be make it untenable. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing that they use so many different technologies made me, uh, not so, didn't make me feel so self-conscious about trying to do something that I was comfortable with that might be different. Sure. 
and uh you know we'll see it it makes a case much easier to like say hey we're going to start using this thing in production at some point and like explain it to people because everyone's heard of heard of rails but when you say phoenix they're like what the hell is that what is that yeah <laughs> and then you say erlang and they're like what the hell is that yeah yeah <laughs> and so on so and then you're like oh but there's otp and they're like what is this uh <laughs> you know it just kind of keeps going yeah for sure certainly i could i could see i could see that we'd like to take a quick break and thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode DigitalOcean is just the simplest cloud platform to run your applications on and you can effortlessly scale them as your business grows from the powerful administration dashboard to robust solutions for compute, storage, and networking, DigitalOcean provides an all-in-one cloud platform to help you save time and money scaling your applications. Every DigitalOcean service has predictable, affordable pricing, so you don't have to worry about complex pricing structures that can lead to nasty surprises at the end of the month. You'll always know exactly what your business will pay for DigitalOcean's industry-leading price performance services in their data centers all over the globe. For example, DigitalOcean droplets, they're quick to provision, and you'll have a virtual machine running in just seconds. And they scale the applications any size. You can provision one droplet or hundreds. They offer managed database hosting as well, and Spaces, which is an S3 compatible object storage solution with very competitive pricing. So if you're thinking about giving them a try, well, we're here to help. You can get started today with a free $100 credit at do.co slash does not. Again, you'll have a real VPS running in just seconds. That's do.co slash does not for $100 credit towards any flexible and scalable hosting solution for your next application. Yeah. So uh, I guess another question I have for you is going back. So I know that I know that RHR is is in Ruby in Rails already, you know, so you're still kind of used to um, it's not like you went to Elixir for your day job and then didn't go back to Ruby and now you're going back to it. And uh, so I guess my main question is, is has has learning Elixir or Phoenix or a more functional language affected how you approach a Greenfield project in Ruby and Rails? So yeah, Greenfield projects are always nice because you have the freedom to do whatever you want, but you uh, you better make some some good decisions because you got to kind of live with them unless you uh, like large refactorings down the road, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the RHR Rails app is a hodgepodge of different design patterns and that's like the worst possible thing i could have done i started it doing in the traditional rail style i got hooked on the trailblazer library for like a month and rewrote half of it in trailblazer okay yeah yeah, so yeah. it's like half the time i don't know where things are uh i got burned out on that i don't really enjoy trailblazer or what it does uh or like it didn't it didn't do anything for that my application it just was a lot of overhead anyway Greenfield is nice. You can, yeah, I can absolutely use my knowledge from Phoenix and uh, to make a better application. I think the biggest thing, the biggest mistake, and this comes from the fact that like when I learned Rails, I didn't learn Ruby first. I just like Rails knew and just started like reading articles and reading books and like making things, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't know Ruby at all. I learned Ruby after I learned Rails, right? Which is so weird. I would not recommend that. But the Rails way of doing things in 2.0 was like everything goes in your controllers, fat models, uh, you know, lots of logic in your controllers. uh, And like routing was, you know, they didn't have channels. They didn't have 
they barely had asset compilation, right? Like those, there was none of these insane amount of features that Rails has today. When I built this, when I started, so what I did was I, I, I actually rewrote the depot, right? Like spoiler alert, I <laughs> re- rewrote the functional. I like I have it working. Like in two or three days, I actually was able to get it working in Rails because mm-hmm. like I'm so productive in Rails, and it's again the gems are awesome and whatever. The biggest thing I tried to avoid and keep my head at all times is that Phoenix really, really hits home is that your application, the actual logic, what your code does is not what your controller does. Like your application and your web layers are separate. Mm-hmm. And Rails has no conventions for that. There's no differentiation. Like they don't, they don't have a way to, they don't have a place for you to put logic that is not on the web. I mean, they they have like a lib folder, but really that's, they treat it like a, I don't know, they treat it weirdly. So first thing I did was, uh, I did this great new thing starting with, I think Rails 5, maybe 4, uh, where they auto load, they add uh, any folder that's in your app folder to the Rails auto loader, which means like the constants, the classes will be available anywhere. Really? Yeah, and they auto load in, uh, reload in, in development. So you can make any subfolder under app and it and uh, restart your server and it'll like pick it up as if it's a first class, you know, controllers and views and helpers and all that. Right. Yeah, I do remember back in the day when I was doing Rails that uh, all the loader, like I would always have to open that thing up. So I would be following some tutorial. I don't have to open that up and add something to it to make sure that it was added globally. Yeah, I used to have to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I tried that first and I was like, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. And it just just loaded it. So what I did was, I, I added two folders to that immediately. Mm-hmm. I added a lib folder. So there's app slash lib. Uh, and in that folder, I put code that's not specific to the application. Like it doesn't know about the database. It's just kind of like utility functions, parsing, uh, things for talking to API clients, right? Like that kind of stuff. Yep, yep. Everything that's not application specific goes in lib. And then I added, I went back and forth on the name for this for a little while. I actually landed on service. So there's a services folder. Uh, services are basically what I think of when I think of Phoenix contexts. I just didn't okay. think that was a good name for this case. And I have services. And so like the service uh, is a object. It, they have like a base application service. Right now it's just empty. And then I have like a inventory service. And that's for like, you know, listing uh, servers from the database that I know about. And then there's a sync, you know, there's an AWS sync service, which just pulls down stuff from AWS and shoves it in the database. There's a glance sync service, which pulls stuff down from their da- their servers and plug- plugs in the database. And so like, they're just, just, they're just like, I think of them like modules, basically. They are classes uh, because, you know, we're an object oriented land. We should take advantage of that. But mm-hmm. like, I put all of my logic in there and then the controller is like the skinniest thing imaginable. It's just like call, you know, call the function is successful render otherwise render an error like that i i don't know why like that's not hammered into you <laughs> from day one of rails development you know i yeah that was one of the biggest things that i struggled with the most is knowing what to do because like you said uh i either shove stuff into the controller or shove stuff into the model and that was that was another thing that i was kind of hammered into my head was skinny controllers fat models but at a, at a certain point the fat models just gets kind of untenable uh Especially when you have callbacks happening, it gets it can get pretty wild in there. And I find that when you're you're kind of trying to focus on this fat model thing, you start to put uh, logic that doesn't necessarily belong in there. And then so 
you know, concerns happen or concerns came out. And then I was like, okay, well, now I need to figure out when, it, you know, like what needs to go into a concern. And then people started writing blog posts about service, service objects. And it was really hard for me to follow along with. And then at some point I did look into the Trailblazer setup and I really liked it. There was a, a more, a more of a formal organization there. Uh, but I think really when I hit Phoenix, even though sometimes I wish that there were more conventions kind of pushed on you into Phoenix, I think like you're kind of talking about this way of having having your your logic that's that's kind of outside of your model layer, that's outside of your control layer, that's kind of separate, right? And you're calling them services. That, you know, like in my mind, it still reads like a context a lot. And I really like that pattern. I mean, it's not strictly... Uh, DDD or domain-driven development, but that that separation of like having a place that you know where this code goes that doesn't necessarily need to know about the database in lib, that's fine. But like having your actual business logic that's not necessarily tied to strictly a model or strictly something else that goes in a, in a place, it's like it just feels clean, right? It makes it easier. It makes it makes it easier for me to think about and reason about the application. Yeah, and really, what it comes down to is like if you dropped it and came back to it. I don't know, three or six months later, like, would you be able to find stuff? Right, yeah, yeah. Right. With controllers and stuff, it's actually pretty easy to find stuff. You can just, you know, oh, this request is bad. Start at the controller and dig your way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the controllers aren't the only way into our applications these days. In fact, you know, there's there's background jobs. You have WebSockets. You've got controllers. You've got, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who knows? So you have other, you know, code that you need to reuse in multiple places. I did look into service objects. Uh, it's just funny because it's one of those service objects is one of those topics where you search for it and you get like so many pro service object articles and then anti, right? Like like unequal amounts. Right. Yeah. I ultimately decided against it because it just felt like a lot of boilerplate. And to to so I did call them services, but they're not service objects in the sense that like every single function or I should say method, I have to get you saying method. Yeah. Every single method is not like wrapped in its own service object class. Like it's, it's just a utility class that just has a bunch of methods on it and they're, they grouped by similar functionality. So uh, I think that's enough. That's abstract enough, especially for this small application. Like I don't need a service object for every single thing. Sure. Well, I, this all make, this all makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I, I think it's it's really cool that I don't know. It's so easy for sometimes developers to kind of get wrapped up in the technology that they they like most. Um, you know, not saying that you like Phoenix the most, but uh, sometimes we get really good at or get used to kind of pigeonholing uh technologies into building things that maybe there's a better solution for and and you know you can build a web app with phoenix and you can build a web app with rails so i guess this example is a little bit different but you know what i mean it's like sometimes sometimes there's just a better tool for the job given the, the certain the given the situation right and and sometimes it's easy for developers to bend the rules there a little bit or or you know or we're willing sometimes to put ourselves in a less than perfect situation uh, just so that we can use something that we, that we're enjoying at the moment. Or is just the new hotness because yeah. it's new, right? Sure. And different. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of what I was originally talking about was uh, so, so I have a kind of like a guitar practicing app that I started working on a long time ago, but never really finished. And 
it's something that I would use myself, much like B-Think. Wait, I didn't know you actually had worked on this already. Oh, yeah. I did like part of it in Rails a long time ago, but never really got very far with it just because uh, I think it was just post-Octopus. So I still didn't really have much. I had like MVP web app experience, but I didn't really spend a lot of time digging into this and like making it a real thing. So it was like the the MVP of MVPs for this idea that I had. Um, and, and so, yeah, so fast forward, I've been playing guitar a lot more recently, wanting to to practice a little bit more. And so one of the, one of the things I was always told when I was learning was, you know, at the end of the day, playing music is fun and it should bring you joy. But if you want to get better, practice can't be just sitting there noodling. Practice has to be focused and there has, it has to be topical, right? You have to have an agenda when you're practicing. So one of the guys that I learned from when he was younger, he got up, so he moved to Nashville and he got up every day, put a suit and tie on and practiced guitar for eight hours a day. Like he was, like he was going to work. And he kept journals. Uh, and so so he could go into his closet and pull out a journal from a certain year. And so he kept a practice journal. Uh, this is on this, on this day. These are the exercises that I focused on. This is how I felt about it. Here are the speeds or the BPMs that I was able to do. This is what I felt insecure about. And that was probably one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me was along this journey. And this kind of applies to programming too. And this is, I know I don't really have an active blog, but it's... Something I tell people that are learning to program is it's really important to keep a journal, even if you don't publish it as a blog, because uh, when you're so close to something and you're learning something, it's hard to to actually see progress that you've made. Uh, but if you have a journal, say like he has his guitar journals and he's feeling like he's not, he's kind of at a plateau and he's not making a lot of progress. He can go look at his journal, flip back a few pages and be like, okay, wow. Yeah, I did make progress. Here are numbers, here are analytics. It's funny to think about them as analytics now, but he's like, here's hard numbers. Here's our hard facts. He's just, this is how, I'm, how I'm improving, right? And uh, so anyway, part of this idea was to be able to catalog my exercises that, uh, that I've come up with um, via tabs. Um, but, but then after I have them cataloged in a web app, what I want to do is I have basically each exercise has different attributes like style. Is it rock? Is it jazz? Is it metal? Whatever. It has attributes like, does this focus on dexterity? Does it focus on speed? Does it focus on strength? And so really what I want to do is sit down, say, I want to practice for half an hour. I want to focus on these attributes and have it generate basically an itinerary for that practice section. That's that's the gist of the idea. Yeah, this sounds awesome. It sounds like you want to pick it back up. I do want to pick it back up and I started picking it back up. But what I don't want to do is, I'm not. this isn't a project where I'm trying out new and cool technologies that I'm interested in. This is just something I want to exist and I don't want to have to spend a lot of time making it exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's approaching it from a very different mindset. Very yeah, very very different mindset. I'm really I'm really productive with Nuxt and in Phoenix. That's that's fine. But yeah, I I guess that's I don't know. So so even though I'm productive with Phoenix, I still have to do all the boring stuff that I don't want to do, which is how I started talking about the subject in the first place. Uh, I still have to, you know, implement all of the uh, stuff. And I, I mean, I used coherence once got once got burned. There's a couple other things out there that are newer, but again, they're they haven't been around in a while, so they could be abandoned. I don't want to I don't want to go through that again, you know. So that's anyway. That's that's where that's kind of why I asked you that question in the first place because I have this thing I want to use it. I want it to exist. I have a few friends that are interested in using it, and they want it to exist, but. I'm working all day and I'm tired and I want to enjoy playing the guitar. Uh, so yeah, that's where we're at. And that's, that's kind of how I has happened upon this, this path. 
so there is an XKCD comic for everything, of course. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. This one is, Is It Worth the Time? And it's a, it's a table on the y-axis is how much time you shave off. And the x-axis is how often you do the task. And then the table tells you uh, across five years how much time you can save. <laughs> it's like you're always doing this calculus. Like, should I do the tool that helps me do my work better? Or should I just do the thing and just move on with my life? Right. Okay. It's like a, it's the, uh, I don't know. It's a never ending conundrum of machinists and programmers everywhere. Right. And woodworkers. So I, they decided on Rails for this project. And I use Rails for literally everything else that I do. I, I have a couple of client projects that I have developed over the years and maintained and I'm still working on. They're all Rails. And guess what? I love Rails because I can go in. I can be super, super, super productive for those kinds of applications. Get in, get the work done, get it out. I could don't have to bill that many hours. Uh, I can do it you know, in my quote unquote free time, right? Like I can do it after hours Mm -hmm. and it doesn't exhaust me. Right. And I can still be productive. Like that's, I'm not really at that point with Phoenix yet. I don't know if I can be at that point with, with the way Phoenix and the tools work. I, I don't know. I'm not saying that Phoenix isn't as productive, but like, like damn, I can sling some some Ruby code. <laughs> like it just yeah, it's just as fast as you can type it. It feels great, and as long as you can just get those architecture things kind of ironed out early and not fall into the quagmire of callbacks and uh, fat models and all that stuff, uh, man, I I really do love it. I really do love it. I I like I like all the little syntactic sugar that Ruby has. I love active uh active record the query syntax and how it does everything uh, basically for you. And mm-hmm. I just love, man, it's so good. I actually, when I was building this, this Rails 6 beta, beta 3 is out currently, uh, has Webpacker support for like, so it's really confusing because they have Webpacker now for doing their JavaScript stuff, but they also have Sprockets, which is the quote unquote legacy way of like compiling CSS and JavaScript assets using like a Ruby pipeline. Yeah, that's what I'm familiar with. Sprockets. Yeah. So they, they're they rolling Webpacker now with Rails, but it's like they actually have both in there, which is super confusing. <laughs> and and I'm like, for this, I'm just like, it, it does it by default, of course. And then when I went to do like my Rails create or uh, Rails new or whatever, and then it installed, it installed on my gems. And then I saw Node fire up and start to install all the dependencies. They're like, no, <laughs> I don't want this. Uh, I just ended up, disabling it i mean you never want to uh you never want to buy like the first model year of a car mm-hmm. and you never want to you know use the the first major release of an application with the new features so i just turned off the webpacker stuff for now uh if i want to do a front end, if i'm going to do a front end application i'm just going to do it as a separate application a separate repo and and i don't want that rolled into my mono repo so what was, where was i going with this i got really off track here uh man you you talk about like being productive and not wanting to have mental overhead Rails is that place for me. It's it's what I have the most experience with. Uh, I know the ins and outs of the language and the framework, uh, more or less, although they're adding new stuff all the time and making it more and more difficult. But I kind of long for the days when like the Rails uh, default router, like there was like a catch-all route that just basically did everything. You never had to write custom routes because huh. there were no concept of rest or resources. It was just like oh, controller okay. slash ID slash action. And like that was the default route, and like that was all you needed to just get off the ground. And it was just like, ah, 
there's so much now. I can't even imagine what it's like for people trying to pick this up today without having all the the background knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it seems like a lot. Uh, but people, I think people are managing. I mean, there's also a lot. I think I feel like these days there's a lot more documentation and, and resources available to pick that stuff up, even though there is more stuff that you have to pick up. So I don't know. I, I go both ways on it. I will say the biggest, biggest, saddest uh, realization I have to come with when going from Phoenix land to Rails land is the documentation. Yes. Is just in general is incoherent, a mess, hard to find inconsistent formatting the aws uh gem itself is awesomely documented everything has is documented appropriately it's searchable uh like all the options are there it's awesome but like try looking at like the ruby standard library like you're on your own dude uh (laughs) good luck finding finding and part of that is like the nature of the beast like the way ruby works and how it mixes in you know classes and modules and stuff sometimes it's hard for the documentation to know like where a particular method comes from, uh, you know, because of mix-ins and whatever. But sure, man, I miss uh, hex docs is and like the standard, the standard documentation. Phoenix has set a new bar for me, and nothing else has come close to that. Really, the whole Elixir ecosystem. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's. So when I when I that's honestly the biggest hangout for me. Uh, ecosystem aside, when I think about should I just made this make this guitar app in in rails because it's not like I, I'll realistically have to think about scaling this, right? It's that's, I don't have to, I just don't have to think about that. A lot of, a lot of thinking about choosing Elixir is about performance and Phoenix is about performance, but that's just, I'm not trying to make this a big website. And even then rails will be, will rails will be fast enough for whatever situation I handle there. The biggest hangout for me is when I go back, Oh man, the other night I went to apidoc.com, which I hadn't been in years, and I looked at it and I was like, "This is, this is not. You can't compare this to, uh, to to like you said, Xdocs, I guess. Like so, for example, Xdocs just released, uh, I think the newest update. I don't remember what version of it. And you can actually preview this with Ecto's documentation. It has a full text searching now, in autocomplete as you type, which is awesome. That's awesome. So, so awesome. So yeah, I've been really spoiled about the level of uh focus just on documentation and elixir and in phoenix alone so that was one of the hard things to me for me to think about was yeah i could slap a bunch of gems in this thing and probably get out the door faster but thinking about maintainability and about learning because again i i I think i feel like i'm more i have more expertise with elixir now than i've been programming elixir longer than i think than i was than i had been with ruby to be honest um so yeah docs are docs are huge quality of life thing but I got some choices to make. Choices to make. Paul's been doing some stuff with C Sharp, and uh, he said it could be just good experience for me. Not that I want to take up building things with C Sharp, but it's just a different. I've never, I never messed with a language like it. Like I've done some Ruby, I've done a lot of Elixir, I've done some Java, a lot of JavaScript. I've never really done a strongly typed language. And he says that the ecosystem around C Sharp is pretty neat because he does some game development with it. So I might be looking into that a little bit. That could be interesting. Uh, I'm sure people's toes just curled up when I mentioned C Sharp or even, God forbid, I mentioned ASP.NET. No, man, C Sharp is awesome. C Sharp is uh, doesn't get a lot of love in the in the open source source world, but like when people need to get stuff done in businesses, uh, C Sharp is awesome. I did it for two years professionally uh, at Agilent, mm-hmm. uh, and then many years before that, uh, doing web 
dev and uh, just my own projects. That was all. It was all. I was all .NET before before Rails came along. So uh, I, th- I still think it's great. It's I haven't used it in many many versions, but it's uh, it's got some really really cool stuff. And yeah, I was looking at the docs, and it was like it was just a whole thing, which it's it's intimidating, but also kind of kind of nice so exact for exactly the same reasons why i was talking like even considering rails is because if you need something it exists and it's been around for a while and it's been contributed to a bunch right yeah and the dotnet framework which like the language itself is one thing the dotnet framework which is you know the standard library more or less is a whole like it does so much so much and guess what it's it's all there it's all consistent like all the namespaces are consistent all the naming right like it's the msdn everything's documented it's it's uh an autocomplete visual studio autocomplete lets you just navigate that without even like knowing what you're looking for like you can just guess where things are and find them (laughs) by typing and hitting dot and scrolling through like oh that's what i want dot scroll to the next thing that's neat yeah yeah well uh i guess we'll see what happens won't we uh probably next week you know what you should do i think i think you should look into cold fusion i hear that's really oh. big these days i was just talking to, uh, to people on twitter about cold fusion it's funny yeah yeah it's coming back around it's the it's the future what was that uh what was that adobe thing uh that was like flash based web apps like before web apps they try to like basically take a hold of the web app ecosystem using uh Flex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Flex. Adobe Flex, which was, yeah, based off of Shockwave. Oh, my. Uh, I tried to, like, grok that because I was really big into Flash and Cold Fusion, and they were trying to roll it in there as, like, Cold Fusion is, like, the server-side portion of the Flex app. It's called the Patchy Flex now? Eesh. I, yeah. That was kind of one of my four early forays into programming was actually ActionScript. Oh, boy. ActionScript. Yeah. That was, like, in Flash apps, right? Yes. Or Flash... Uh, Swifts is too is too advanced dot com still a thing? I used to go to this website all the time. Too advanced. They had the coolest flash websites. Oh, the wheel's spinning. <laughs> it was too advanced, and there was another one. There was another one. They did r dot com back in the day. Uh, shoot, what was it? Oh, there was also also ultrashock dot com. You remember that? Ultrashock. You never saw ultrashock? Oh man, they're both spinning. I don't think they're around anymore. Wow, end of an era. End of an era. Too advanced and ultrashock. I'll see if I can. To find those on way back or something. Uh, I'm pressing F. You what? I'm pressing F. Let's pay respects. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love how they're trying to market Cold Fusion as this modern thing on Adobe's website. Uh, yeah. Well, Cold Fusion Enterprise only nine thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars. Oof. Standard is only twenty five hundred. Well, I guess we'll see what happens by next week. Maybe I'll just do it in Phoenix because I'm familiar. Maybe I'll. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Well, I don't know what happened. I don't know. Stay tuned next week, and uh, you'll you'll hear more about this because I really don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't know. I'll be here. I really don't know. All right. Well, uh, if anyone has any suggestions, ecosystems they really enjoy, um, aside from Django, not that I don't like Django. It's just that I'm not looking to pick up Python right now. We didn't even talk about server-side JS. Oh, we didn't. No, no. And I'm not really interested in picking up more Node either, to be honest. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. Let me know what you think about uh, that, about me kind of trying to figure out what I want to do with this project. Uh, But anyway, yeah, feedback is appreciated. Um, Sharing, tweets, you know, rates and reviews on iTunes, all that's really appreciated. We appreciate it. Smash that like button. Smash the like button and follow and subscribe. 
Um, thanks to everyone that's already, you know, tweeted at us and shared the show and, and repeat and, uh, rated the show on iTunes. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, and, uh, just ask that you guys keep it rolling. As always, you can tweet at us at DNC show on Twitter. You can reach Sean directly at Sean Washbutt and I will be at Shrockwell. But I have to say the at sign. I always say the at sign, but you really don't have to. At Shrockwell. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of implied. I don't think I ever say the at sign at Shrockwell. I don't think I say that. Um, show notes are going to be up at dnc.show, and I'll tweet out a link to those uh, as well. And uh, On our shiny new uh, Gridsome site. Our shiny new work in progress Gridsome site. Gosh, I have so much stuff I need to do. Sorry. It's okay. We'll also have a discussion for each episode over on spectrum.chat where Sean will post show notes and you can uh, chat with us in real time, leave comments, and uh, reach us there. And uh, as always, thanks to Spec for having us and for putting up with us and for allowing me to mumble into the microphone for an hour every week. And uh, we really do appreciate what, they, what they've what they done for us and what they continue to do for us. So shout out to them. Thanks for having us. Um, if you haven't checked out the other shows on the network, you should definitely do that. Yeah, Spec is awesome, and I love them. Yes. This week's episode of Does Not Compute was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. All right. I'll see you uh, See you next week when you're cold fusion expert. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. See you. Thanks again to Sentry.io for sponsoring Does Not Compute. Don't wait for an error report from a user to act on it. Iterate faster, improve your customer's happiness, and make a better product with Sentry's comprehensive error reporting platform. Check them out at century.io. And of course, thanks also to DigitalOcean. They really are the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. Visit do.co slash does not to sign up and receive a free $100 credit towards your next application.